You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Right, so we've got another episode today, and we've got uh, a longtime friend, uh, Kevin Sweeney, with us. And Kevin Sweeney, he is a co-founder and lead pastor of Imagine Church, an urban church in Honolulu that is welcoming of all people, sees imagination as the key to the future, chooses authenticity over performance, substance over hype, and quality over quantity. He's the host of the podcast called The Church Needs Therapy. You can find there's an episode with me on that. And he's the author of a forthcoming book called The Making of a Mystic, My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor, and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax. Come on. That's, that's going to be coming out <laughs> May 31st. Um, and he's also got another one that's uh, in the works. It's called The Joy of Letting Go, which will also um, come out. That'll be January 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're really excited. He lives in, again, Honolulu with his wife, uh, Christine, and their two kids, uh, True and Michaela. And so, Kevin, welcome to Inverse Podcasts. Yeah, man, I appreciate it, dude. I'm grateful to be here. Yeah. I mean, one, Drew and I met on Twitter and Skyped before it was cool to meet on the internet. I just want to say that. I don't know. Do you remember that? We actually <laughs> Skyped like 10 years ago. Yes, yes. And we're and like, I'm hey, like, I we. Was, fo- I was trying to tell Jared, I was like, he, he sent me, I was like looking for it. I couldn't find it, but I was like, he actually sent me, uh, which was a pretty decent uh, hip hop album that you did for your class, right? For Ralph Watkins course. Oh man, you know I don't. I can't even get a hold of that anymore. I, think I had it, it somewhere. So if dude, you have to try to. Sit. I just need to find it. I would have played it. I probably would have made that the intro to your episode um, <laughs> if I had found it quickly. I would have been in shock. <laughs> and you know that I had a background growing up as a teenager in hip hop and I grew up in Los Angeles actually before I moved to Hawaii at 18 so I grew up rapping wasn't you know involved in the church in my teenage years I didn't grow up with that kind of culture um like a lot of people did but I stopped rapping but then in grad school Watkins in my black theology class or hip hop and theology class he taught he'd be like you can write a paper or do a creative project and all I have to do is find somebody with a home studio. I'm like, I could write a song like this and record it. So that was like, it was a cool song. I actually think it was dope, but I'm like, this is just, I don't have to write a paper. Here you go. <laughs> so Kevin, you know, that's the big thing, right? It, it, is that Drew actually said, and it's good. Like the, the oh, fact no. that like it, it got a blessing. Um, Bro, it, I would, it must have I been would, all right. I would tell you, I am not one of those white dudes who has a little bit too much to drink and is like, I can freestyle. And you're like, no, you know, there's a, there's a lot of those people who say they can rap. That's what they mean. I'm like, no, I really did this. And what's funny was I recorded that for the class. Just like I said, like a one-off, like, cool, just give me an A on this. And a woman who was in the class, who was a director, she's like an NAACP award-winning director of plays, heard it. And asked me to be in a play of hers at the Wilshire Ebel Theater in Los Angeles performing that song. Wow. 
Yeah, so it was like all of a sudden I'm at the Wilshire Evel and it's like this big theater and I'm just like performing. <laughs> Anyways, dude, life is so fascinating. I love and, it. And and you did it? I did, yeah. Oh, wow. That's I did amazing. like two or three two or three nights of the play where I was like, I didn't have to really learn lines. They just somehow incorporated it where I just had to come out and perform it. And I went back. So it just was like, all right, I guess I'm in a play now. Add that to my weird CV that has nothing that would help get me a job, but has stuff that I think is interesting. <laughs> like, and that's fascinating. Like Anti-imperial, anti-corporate, Jesus following kind of. Oh, yeah. It was, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I remember. I remember. Yeah. Well, if if we can find that, if that can resurface, um, yeah, yeah. M- maybe we can incorporate it into the episode. That'd yeah, be fun. Yeah. That'd be a lot some, of fun. Do some homework mm-hmm. on that. The other thing I <laughs> do have to mention, I always got to give Kevin his credit because he's the one that coins anablactivism for me. And there you so go. He just like dropped it out of nowhere, you know, and I was like. I mean, I wasn't going to say anything because I honestly forgot. But now that you mention it, you know, I remember (laughs) years later, I'm like, oh, look at Drew. He's all blowing up. He's all writing books now. He's hashtagging anablactivism. I'm like, but we know years ago where that came from. So I appreciate that. I was like, there's like the perfect description of what I was doing at that time. So Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. That's great, man. So good. So good. Well, um, Kevin, sketch for us a little bit about this new book. Um, we've we've banned all dad jokes, so we're not going to say um, Kevin's into mushrooms because he's a fun guy because <laughs> clearly is a dad joke. Um, but uh, obviously for some people, what has um, uh, raised eyebrows and have people leaning in is um, uh, like mushrooms is actually in the title. Um, so well done on the clickbait. Uh, mm-hmm. Would you open that up for us a little bit? Yeah, one, I just love the title. I think it's so funny. You know, I'm just the type of person. I'm like, I'm going to do that because I think it's funny. But that title, one, the making of a mystic, and then those subtitles of my journey with mushrooms, my life as a pastor, and why it's okay to, for everyone to relax, in a really profound and honest way, captures some bigger picture zoomed out movements of my life you know so you could get in the book like some of the define. it's not a biography but there's some autobiographical moments so you can get some of the defining moments in my own story so you know existential crisis at 17 mushrooms as a spiritual guide for me when I didn't have any this spontaneous awakening moment with God, this direct experience of spirit that just undid me and rewired my consciousness at that age and completely changed the course of my life. You do get that. And Mm. a, a quick thing to make sense of that is one, for some podcasts that I feel like are a bit more evangelical ish, I've sent them a disclaimer and just said, Hey, look, I'm not like a massive advocate for psilocybin research right now. That's not my thing. I'm just letting you know that I don't want you to be worried about that in the book there or else Drew won't have me on, you know, he's a professor. He can't be associated with me. Um, But there's a story that one of the chapters in the book is called mushrooms and missionaries. And when Thomas Merton was young, so, you know, Thomas Merton, one of the great mystics Mm of the 20th century from my vantage point, reintroduced the church to contemplation into a contemplative spirituality. And early on in his awakening journey, there was a visiting Hindu monk that was lecturing at some Ivy League school or schools named Muhammad Brata Brahmachari. 
And mm-hmm. so, you know, Merton goes to him and probably listens to what he's saying, but he somehow gets in touch with him, maybe stops him and says, he basically asks for guidance. You know, he's asking him to point him further. Where should I go? Who should I read? Whatever he's saying. And the fascinating thing about this Hindu monk is he didn't point him to some of his own texts that may have shaped him as a child or some of his own cultural things. He told Thomas Merton to read St. Augustine's Confessions. And he told him to read Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ. Mm. Now, I don't think it was in that Hindu monk's job description to be a missionary for Christ. I just don't think that's what he was lecturing about at Yale in 19, whatever it was. But if we can suspend the colonial domination, empire, white supremacist, patriarchal, not that that word missionary is tied up, and rightfully so, let's do the work of dismantling. Mm. Clearly, you have Drew and Jared. You wouldn't be here if you weren't interested in that, I'm assuming. But in its, <laughs> in its good in its good sense, like, okay, a missionary is someone who's pointing someone further towards the fullness of life in Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, in the same way that Hindu monk did that for Thomas Merton, mushrooms did that for me in my own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kept sensing mushrooms. Again, I was not familiar with evangelical culture. I didn't have that. No youth groups. I didn't know, you know, Chris Tomlin existed growing up or whatever. Like, I actually just told a friend, I was like, I used to be in Napster. If those of you are younger, it was like the first internet music thing to get it. Nice. And I'd be in Napster writing Redman, like Methaman and Redman, you know, like Def Squad, like the rapper to get his music. And a name would always pop up and it said Matt. I thought Redman, but it was Matt Redman. So that was the closest I got to worship music was me looking for Redman and worship music would pop up and I would never click on it. But I always sensed in my own journey, the mushroom saying, yes, but keep going. You are getting a glimpse here, but keep going. There is wisdom that is being integrated into your life and into your body, but the fullness of it is not here. Like roar, like some Buddhists would say about spiritual practices, all practices are fingers pointing to the moon. And the mushrooms were pointing me beyond themselves to a reality I hoped existed, but was not sure of. And eventually when I had that spontaneous awakening moment with God, I never did psychedelics again. I never did hard drugs again. Took me a while to quit smoking weed at that point. But for me, it was these were the signs pointing me to the ocean, the river, the life of God. And once I was in the ocean, I'm like, the issue is not to go back and read the signs. The issue is to make my home in the river and eventually to become the river, to become the ocean. So Mm. that's that. But besides that part of the story, I want people to feel like just the mysticism of every day, right? Mm -hmm. So the book is about non-dual seeing and it's also about choosing your kids over building a platform yeah right it's about pastoring and creating from a liberated place that knows it has what the ego already seeks from creating Mm. it's about being liberated by a cosmic vision and still having the capacity to love your concrete neighbor right next to you you know so i'll tell people the book isn't about one thing it's about many things and eventually to discover that many things are all about one thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's I'm going to stop there for now. So that's what I hope people get a feel of like the life of a mystic is not some unattainable, you know, ununderstandable thing, but non-dual seeing the life of the mystic being grounded affects our day-to-day life of this person just criticized me as a pastor. You know what the mystic does on a Tuesday afternoon? 
refuse to compartmentalize, refuse to ignore the fact that I was a bit offended and hurt. I'm going to sit with that. I'm going to face it. I'm going to let go of whatever illusions I might have about how life's supposed to work. I will overcome it. I'm going to move on. That's what a mystic Mm. does on a Tuesday afternoon. So I want people to have that real feel of what life is like when you are, when your life is not, this is what I believe about God, but a surrendered open life that is actually in Christ. Yeah, Kevin, one of the things that impresses me about what you just said is uh, um, w- what you were saying about the, the mushrooms um, and it not becoming a source of um, escapism, but rather mm. a, a, f- a further drawing in. Um, you've just said about criticism and that, that's fascinating because I, um, I think sometimes uh, whether it's shrooms or um, any number of other um, substances that it's um, sometimes people can have these mountaintop experiences and church conferences included, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so uh, one's legal, uh, but they cost about the same. Um, mm-hmm. And one um, re- uh, requires travel into yourself and one might require travel across the country or the world, but mm-hmm. there's this heightened experience and you have these mountaintop experiences. Um, but what you see at the mountaintop whether it be at like some hyped conference or whether it be um, uh, using a particular substance, there is still the daily work of walking out to the horizon that you've glimpsed in those high mountain experiences. Mm-hmm. So you, you're given the vista and that's legitimate, but some people just get addicted to, um, I want another view from the top instead of I'm going to walk through that valley and actually get to, and that's the, that's the loving your neighbor, like loving your enemies, Mm. like um, uh, the kind of love that's good news for all creation kind of work. That's one step at a time. While so many of us get um, caught up in uh, what's the next experience. What's it. And the dynamics around um, uh, carpet time at a conference versus mushrooms and people's concern about um, I know people who are stuck in flashbacks of certain conferences and it's like, <laughs> and I say, we, we, we need to actually ground ourselves in this moment instead of the mm. flashbacks and the, mm. um, the psychosis that can lead to this mm. addictive kind of spirituality stuff. So I really, I really appreciate that. Do you just basically said one of the chapters in the book? You know, like really like that, that, that way of thinking is so in tune. Like I have a chapter called peaks and paths and it's about what you're talking about. So on point where I'm like, whatever we experience on the peak needs to become who we are in the path. Mm. The vision needs to be transformed into values and that spiritual high needs to become solid ground. And what happens is we want to go back and recreate and manufacture the God experience. Yeah. Right. I go to the conference. I'm like, how, how hard can I cry these tears? How high can I raise my hands? And I'm not against those things. If, if those yeah. things are helpful in any way, if those are fingers pointing to the moon and that's a cultural thing for you, that's fine. You know, that's, we all have the different traditions we're a part of, but mm. we can't go back and try to do that night after night. The point is this, we know the spiritual experience doesn't always translate into a spiritual life. Yeah, we've gotten a glimpse, really but we good. have to get closer to the goal, right? We've seen something true revealed in that moment. That's fantastic, but we don't know how to translate that into a lived reality. 
And so there's Christian versions of that. You went to some big conference. You heard all the inspiring speakers. You took rigorous notes in a notebook. You're never going to look at again, but man, you wrote them down. You feel me? (laughs) And and you think in that moment, everything will be different, but it's frustrating because by the next Friday, everything feels the same. Mm. And it is frustrating. And I understand that. And I feel that for people. And also not to just pick on our own tradition, or you go to Burning Man, you go to Joshua Tree and sure. eat some mushrooms with friends. You pay for a three-day workshop that's supposed to guarantee you transcend your ego forever. And you believe <laughs> you were born again and you're a new guru. And guess what? Next Friday, it's life feels the same. And that is the wisdom. And that is the, the mysterious alchemy of meditation and contemplation. Mm. So why Ken Wilbur would say, mm-hmm. these temporary states need to become permanent traits. Yeah. And I would say what you ex- who you experience, that sense of self in that temporary space, we want to become our permanent face. Mm. And without contemplation, without meditation, prayer, whatever you call it, even our most powerful experiences of God will never turn into a peaceful life with God. Yeah, that's really good, Kevin. Hey, you had that. That's great. But there is a practice of silence, a simple thing, 20 minutes, three or four days a week. There's mm-hmm. this mysterious thing of the more I go there, the more the vision, the wisdom, whatever I saw up there on the mountaintop starts to get integrated slowly and woven into my very yeah. being. And what I believe starts to be to become who I actually who I am. am. So, yeah. Yeah. This, the, wor- this the work is, so is always after Friday night. The work is always after the mountaintop. Yeah. Oof. I mean, um. We got other questions, Kev, but um, just in terms of, Jared hooked. yeah, like <laughs> this is this is stuff I'm so passionate uh, about, um, and I guess um, from my own context of like particularly helping people um, who are engaging in social change and the same patterns and how they work out in social change. But Drew and I have just been talking. Um, you, you named these certain patterns of. Uh, experience or encounter um, that uh, like displace the ego enough that a vision of something else is actually able to Mm -hmm, um, pierce it and um, uh, there's a there's a sense of um, more and also uh, like um, uh, uh, and this is where the addictive sense of um, the displacement itself um, there's a sense of of worth and belonging although that can also be terrifying Uh, subject for uh, another day but um drew and i were reflecting about this when it comes to um uh anti-racism work and how for for some people the the patterns of um quote-unquote repentance that they've learned that it needs to be a once-off event it needs to particularly in anglo-saxon emotional spaces where mm. the spectrum is only um, this big of what's appropriate there might be a lot of tears um, that, um, you know, are really countercultural in terms of Anglo-Saxon emotionality um, <laughs> and a public declaration of I've done wrong and the emotional catharsis um, that uh, a- accompanies this declaration of um, wrong. That's a pattern that so many have learned um, when dealing uh, um, in, in those particular contexts, which really does provide a important kind of milestone for people but it doesn't integrate. And Mm. uh, for those who are on the receiving side of those wrongs, it's also like 
Sorry, can we time out? Because I thought this was actually about you addressing the way you've been in this space. And you've just turned this into an altar call for you for this being a meaningful moment for like um, integrating like an awareness. Um, I, I wonder the role of um, mm. contemplative prayer in people actually doing the work of um, not becoming addicted to ego displacement, but living out of that place where mm. um, you're not centered, but can actually um, center um, y- y- your neighbor who is really suffering. Would you speak to some of that? Because I know these are concerns that like um, you have and time that you've spent as well. Um, have you put those things together much? I'll, I'll be honest. I haven't directly thought about what you're saying explicitly in terms of like people being in spaces and having this performative, we're repenting and now we're having a moment, you know, but mm. it doesn't seem to be integrated and it doesn't seem to be transforming their practices and their systems and their culture and their usage of money along the way, which mm-hmm. is like, okay, what do we do after this? There's life after this. That's yeah. what we really care about. But I will say this, the, prof- the wisdom of the mystic and when we think about contemplation and meditation is one of the things you experience in silence is, and it takes time to learn how to be in silence. You know, the monkey mind, we have to learn. It, it's, it mm. takes years. Like I told somebody in my church once, if you commit 20 minutes a day for three to four days a week in five years, you'll be ready to start, mm. <laughs> you know? So yeah. it's a work, but one of the things you experience experientially, don't just believe, but know in your body during silence is you, you disidentify with your ego and you know, I'm over here having beliefs that are over there. I'm over here that has emotions that are over there. I, whatever I am, that's deeper than my ego sense of self is over here and who I thought I was in my ego is actually over there. So it's like a spatial experiential experience. And that's helpful because mm-hmm. Anytime you look at something, you're no longer only looking through it. Mm-hmm. And if you never look at something and decide, you don't disidentify with it, you just keep looking through it. And it is True. once I look yeah. at it, I start to gain distance. And when I gain distance, it starts to lose its power over me. Right. Mm. And so in prayer over and over and over and over, you are your ego is being decentered experientially and you're experiencing this broader sense of this larger self, this true self that's in Christ that Mm. doesn't need power the way my ego does, doesn't need to be validated the way my ego does, doesn't need approval the way my ego does, whatever the structure is. Here's why I say that. The less we are over-identified with our ego and all of its insecure needs, the easier it is now. When I return to my social life and my spaces, I don't need to believe I'm at the center because I experientially know I'm not just in life Mm. as a whole, you know? Mm -hmm. So if I go into spaces, say where, you know, it's voices of color. Like I sat on the board at Fuller when they had a black theology department to help like choose who was going to be the next Dean of it at the time, you know, because that was my community. Mm. And I'm like, my voice is welcomed in those spaces because I don't assume it has to be welcomed in those spaces. I'm like, I'm here contributing. If you want me to speak, cool. If not, I'm also okay with that. And so when I think about not just a performative gesture of forgiveness, but an actual repented, transformed in the materiality of your life, it's, I can go to a whole thing and you don't even have to talk about me while I'm here. 
because my ego no longer has that need to feel a sense of place of my voice needs to be heard or I'm smart and I, I need to prove myself to them because I, you know, I've read James Cone too. And if you don't, you know, I read Kelly Brown Douglas, have you, you know, it's like my ego wants you to know that because I want to be cool. I want Drew to think, you know, I know what's up or whatever. It's like, well, we might get there, but the less you identify with the ego, the less you're overcome by its needs. And therefore, like the need for power, the need for the center just becomes less and less. And for white folks, it's like people aren't saying they don't want you around ever or you don't have any more place in the world. It's just like chill if you're not the one running the show, bro. You know, like it's all good. And amazingly, when you do that enough, like, and people see your heart and you're not jockeying for power, they're going to ask you to speak. They're going to ask you to share and cool, contribute on their terms. Let other people be in the driver's seat and steer this and be cool being a part of the journey. And guess what? Like, that's that's enough. It's already amazing, dude. Mm -hmm. Like, no one's saying you can't enjoy life or care about this. Just be in a place without having to need to be the center and contemplation is training grounds for not being in the center because in contemplation yeah. you're not yeah so good. so that's good that's timely <laughs> we've been having all kinds of conversations in our community so that's been um this is uh time and i think people appreciate um, reflecting on that um and i should uh just mention as a little extra support for the book you can find yours truly uh, also provided a, a blurb for it um and i don't provide blurbs for everybody because oh come on now um, I, jared denied me drew said yes yeah, jared's <laughs> a little tougher but i have i have provided just kidding i'm kidding blurbs, by the way critical endorsements for books that have been denied because i have nice. a critique of it because i just feel i have to be honest about you know what i'm putting my name to but i do think um that people are gonna i wish it wasn't refreshing drew people letting their yes be yes on books i know i know but i appreciate that <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotta be true um, but no people are gonna appreciate the resource i think it's gonna be um really meaningful so thank you for your good work yeah man um, i appreciate that yeah yeah so um one of the things that we do like to do is to ground our conversation around a particular passage do you have a particular passage that you can read for us right now to kind of just set some atmosphere for our conversation yes i do it's hebrews eleven twenty four through 25 <clears throat> and the writer writes by faith moses when he had grown up refused to be known as the son of pharaoh's daughter he chose to be mistreated along with the people of god rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin Woo. Good. I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh i'm already feeling it yeah. i've preached on that one before <laughs> kevin um i know the, the podcast isn't new to you. So here's, here's the standard question. When do you first remember encountering the Bible? Here's my little, um, my little precursor to that. What's fascinating about my journey is I had the direct, immediate, and transformative experience of God before I read the Bible. Mm -hmm. So I had the awakening in the cosmic Christ before I was called into the stories of the day-to-day -day Jesus. So that has always that will all has and always will shape my relationship with the scriptures hmm. and with doctrine and dogma and beliefs right it's interesting to experience an awakening moment on the christ journey before you have any of the doctrine and dogma you're supposed to believe on the christ journey so that's just we'll leave that out there for a sec 
So probably I started engaging really with the Bible consistently one to two years after my first experience of God when, when I was 18 around Christmas. So probably like 19 or 20 was when I first started hearing sermons. Mm. And then, you know, I, I, the first church I was a part of here in Hawaii was a four square church. If people are familiar with that, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, a Pentecostal denomination, Amy, simple McPherson fans, where are you at? Uh, but, and you know, it was, I wasn't really involved in, in a sense. I just went to Sundays and I heard sermons. I was like, this is cool. Like I had never really been a part of that. This is great. It was a great preacher who was there at the time. And soon after they were big on like the life journal, like doing devotions, which is like, read this text. It was like, I think Wayne, the pastor there came up with it where it's like the acronym SOAP. It's like scripture, observation, application, prayer. And at some point I just started doing that with people, I assume, or probably around 20. So hearing sermons and then like, oh, this is a way from like, and started reading the Bible myself. So around there, at that time I was starting to read the Bible too. So yeah, that was when, that was when, that was when it was going on. Hmm. So when you think about, um, those early encounters with the Bible. Um, I'm curious about like how you were experiencing it. Um, were you experiencing it as something kind of liberative, oppressive, or something else? Like what everyone has a different kind of relationship, especially with their early encounters with scripture. Yeah, I was 19. I read one passage. I was like, this is all empire. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't have that language yet. Um, <laughs> I was like, do you all see? Do you all see? Um, you know, again, I'm just going to say something brief because it affects how I engage with the Bible. Like mm -hmm. I was reading the text of my own heart before the text of scripture, right? I was reading the presence of spirit in my life before the presence of spirit in the Bible, which as a sidebar, when we look at so many things happening culture right now with pastors and mistakes and money and power and women and all these dynamics of people being held accountable, I've thought to myself over the years, the problem isn't that most pastors don't know how to read the Bible. They don't know how to read their own lives. Mm -hmm. wow. They have all, they've memorized way more scriptures than me. I can guarantee that, but I know my impulses and I know when I think things and I know what's arising and what has saved me and made me be able to pastor without burning out, without doing weird things is of course, the scriptures have brought me into this great story, but it was actually reading my own life that has led me to the self-awareness that has then led to the transformation. So that's mm. my sidebar about things going mm. on. But for me, that when I read the Bible, what was so cool was I felt like it was saying yes to a lot of the things I already experienced. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't some separate thing teaching me something I never knew. It was sort of saying yes to an experience I had already had. So I can remember two of the first things I remember is in the Proverbs when it starts off with searching for wisdom, wisdom crying out in the streets, you know, searching mm. for wisdom, like, like rubies and all these things. I'm like, that's what I did. All I wanted to know what was real. I gave my life to pursue it. I gave my life to search for wisdom and truth. And, and it revealed itself to me, you know? So I'm like, mm. Hold, I'm like, dude, this happened. Like, this is sick. This is real. This is true. And I, and, and also Matthew six of like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and seeking, you know, first the kingdom and all else will be given to you as well, or whatever it says again, you know, not direct memorization. That's my version. But I remember being like, you can live like that. 
like Jesus is showing us we can live like this. And, and I believe that. And that's what I've always wanted. Mm-hmm. I remember being 17. I was actually at the plugs house. For those of you who don't know what a plug is, it's the person who gives the, who wholesales and gives you drugs to sell. And I remember sitting at my friend's house when I was young and just being like, I just want to be <laughs> like that. I remember thinking that I just want to be in like, not have to do the next thing, not have to prove myself, not have to do, I just want to be able to be and be at peace. And at that age, I'm like, I don't know if that's possible, but Jesus was showing me there is a way towards that. And that was exciting for me. And I believe that. Um, Now, I never experienced the Bible as being oppressive for me or harmful or shaming for me personally. Now, there's reasons why. One, I didn't go to the kinds of youth groups and be traumatized by the things a lot of people are still working through today. And I can joke about that, but it's real. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't like here, eat this cookie, but guess what? On the inside of a cookie is cotton because inside you is actually evil. You know, here's our lesson for the day, you know, and now chocolate chocolate chip cookies are triggering, you know, at 24. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That is messed up. So one, I, I didn't have that. You know, I didn't have those. I didn't have, I went to Catholic school first, second, third grade. I stopped going to mass soon after my parents didn't force me, which I'm really grateful for. And I told my mom recently, I left that experience with a pleasant indifference towards religion. Hmm. It was no antagonism, no oppositional energy, no anger, no trauma, but also not like this is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I also Hmm. didn't have that. I was just like, whatever. I don't know what that was exactly. But also we know the tradition gets in you in these bodily unconscious ways. So who knows, right? Um, And also growing up as a cisgender straight white male in the United States of America, I have occupied, you know, arguably the most privileged position on the planet. So yeah, I didn't have the traumatic experience in church, but I also didn't grow up in a system that was supported by the Bible, you know, that Mm -hmm. was leveraged against my well-being and flourishing. So I also didn't have that, you know, privilege allowed me to be able to not have to deal with a system that was working against me and somehow have the Bible intertwined with that, you know, so I, you know, my my privilege allowed me to not deal with that. So the Bible was always a companion for me on an already established journey with God. You know, it's sacred. I, you know, uh, believe it's inspired and I, and I love it. And I think it calls us into this great story that I've given my life to. So I've all, even to this day, like, this is my bad pastor confession. Like I don't read the Bible devotionally. I just don't, you know, for me, it's just pure silence. And the, the Bible never felt like a connector between me and God. It was information about God. It was initiating into the story and the way of Jesus concretely, which is helpful. But I'm like, when I read the Bible, I don't experience the same level of union I do in silence. So for me, it was never that, you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I have a relationship with it, but I do understand it's unique, especially as a pastor. But I mean, now, especially you get more resources along the way, you get more voices giving you better ways of reading. You're like, this thing's this is special, you know, what mm. it's calling us into when you have these liberating ways of seeing it. So, mm. you know, I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll stop there. No, it's, it's fascinating, Kev. Um, the, your Catholic formation in terms of schooling um, was, um, 
Ignatian practices part of that, like, um, or, or Lectio? Was there any um, uh, meditative uh, approach to the scriptures or was it merely just hearing it in mass? Yeah, my, I mean, obviously my memory is not infallible. I, we had a religion class and I do mm. distinctively, my most religious experience there was watching that Moses movie with Charlton Heston. Oh, wow. Which, you know, that famous... Ten Commandments movie. Yep. It's a I've seen it made thing. fun it's of on the very Simpsons. Strange, yeah. you know. And I, I've said in my first one of my first sermons I ever preached publicly, I was like, "You understand having Charlton Heston play Moses is like having a movie called The Last Black Man on Earth played by Tom Hanks." Does anyone see why this would be a problem? <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of that. That's actually me stealing that from Paul Mooney from the Chappelle Show, by the way. So that's actually something he said back in the day. Um, but no, I don't remember anything meditative about it. I remember going to mass once a week at school and I would go with my family as well. And I don't really remember much of religion class, but definitely not the, I don't remember any meditative stuff. Mm. I know when leaving Catholic school at nine and going to public school at a LA, LA being Los Angeles, LA Unified School District where kids were cussing and fighting every day, mm. like not every day, but all the time. That was my salvation at that age. Mm. I was like, this is awesome. You can cuss and fight all the time and know it does not even that big a deal. I was like, mom, I'm here. Please leave me. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, that's why I'm saying that pleasant indifference was like, I had no, like, this has anchored me to God yeah, or even yeah. have no, like a, appreciate that. you know, I remember praying once to win a soccer game, but it was just like this indifference to like, Hey man, like, it's cool. Like, I'm not mm. really thinking about it, mm. yeah, um, which has served, which has served me well in many ways. Cause I've had so much less unlearning and undoing and less disassembling than so many of my peers have to go through to maintain a commitment to the way of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I only bring it up. Um, uh, Kat and I, we, we watched um, through the eyes of Tammy Faye Baker mm. um, just the other night and Andrew Garfield is in it. Um, Drew, I don't know if you saw silence, but um, there was a fascinating interview because um, Garfield continues to play these religious characters, right? Like there's a number of films where, and uh, the question um, was asked of him, uh, um, how does he identify religiously? And his response, um, I think, was the agnostic, agnostic pantheist who identifies as Jewish, um, mm. <laughs> which is kind of like a lot of my Jewish friends, actually. But yeah. <laughs> Um, he said the the preparation he did with um, uh, I can't remember the um, particular um, Jesuit, um, but an American Jesuit uh, for the movie Silence had him um, uh, doing like uh, Ignatian meditation on the Gospels, and his mm -hmm. response to the whole thing is like I I have a personal relationship with Jesus from these experiences, um, but I don't identify as a a Christian, um, which I, I found fascinating. And yeah. um, I, I know so many people who have come to faith through such imaginative practices that mm. the scripture isn't seen as a, a, a doorway, but rather the, the raw material, um, the, uh, the compost in which yeah. a, a beautiful something grows that could only grow in that rich soil. Um, mm. But uh, like, if you try and eat the soil directly, you're going to get sick versus waiting mm. for the fruit that grows out of it. I only bring that up because um, our next question um, uh, is about how people view um, scripture 
uh, as a gift for others, like what out of your own life experience. Um, we sometimes use the word hermeneutic and um, sometimes we just make fun of ourselves that it's it's a word that isn't accessible for everyone unless no, uh, we make fun of Drew because as a professor, he still uses that word all the time. He's not in touch right. with the people anymore. He's still talking about hermeneutics. All right. He's not on the ground. He's not on the ground. Prof. I'm a theology prof. We don't have to use these words. We make up words in theology. Um, you, you talked um, really beautifully uh, about the difference between um, if you can't look at something, you look through it. I'm wondering, as someone who uh, is pastor of a community, um, what kind of invitation do you give to people around reading scripture um, through your own life experience so they can read it in ways that do turn the world upside down and don't ask of the scriptures um, unrealistic kind of things that put pressure on them to be something they're not? Oh, man, I think this would be one of those times where I fall into the categories of like, you know, bad pastor, because I, I probably don't emphasize reading the scriptures to people devotionally or personally as much as a lot of people do. And I think could be good. And a lot of that just flows out of who I am, because I don't do it like that all the time. So to people from Imagine who have not heard, I have not taught you how to read the Bible well, please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say in a general sense, you know, like to give people um, in ways that have, is that a different question? Like what shaped my lens and how I read, you know, yeah, was that a question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Like what's your lens? How do gotcha. you read the, the texts? What, what are okay. you? Okay. Here's how I read it and shape it. I have not offered that lens well to others is what I'm saying, but my, but I have it, you know, I just don't do a good job disseminating and delegating that to others. When I was at Fuller, I was, my focus was black and womanist theology. So this is probably like Jared, like Twitter, you know, when I'm like first hearing from people and seeing stuff you're writing and drew, this is when that was all going down. So mm. You know, I had a professor there, Ralph C. Watkins, who's now at Columbia Seminary in, in Atlanta. And, you know, intro to Black theology. Uh, I took an African Roots of Christianity course. He taught a hip hop mm. and theology course. And then I started just doing directed studies with him because you could set those up. And he's like, I, he's like, I don't want to grade papers. I'm like, I don't want to write them. So he would just give me a ton of books to read over the summer. And it's like, cool. Mm. Man the black and womanist tradition gifted me with the liberating present flesh and blood concrete jesus mm -hmm. and i'm forever indebted to that tradition for the for that Amen. you know kelly brown douglas who i joked about earlier her book the black christ her book what's faith got to do with it mm. man i saw she was on here recently so mm -hmm. Kelly Brown Douglas, for those of you, if anyone reaches out, come on the church needs therapy. I know Drew and Jared. So those are my personal connections. <laughs> but, you know, I one of the things that stays with me is in those books, you know, she had a critique of the creeds that I was just like, dude, this is it. You know, where she's like, the creeds are, yeah, they're helpful. They've shaped our great tradition. I understand all that. These river banks of the faith we're all swimming in, but like the creeds are so metaphysical. They say nothing about the That's earthly right. ministry of Jesus and they require nothing of you. 
you know, when it comes to becoming and when it comes to doing, when it comes to justice, you can just believe these things and be a white and be totally complicit in systems of white supremacy or an actual bigot and just still believe these things, right? Mm. And so that along with her powerful demonstration that what defines the earthly ministry of Jesus is his solidarity with the oppressed and his, his, his identification with the marginalized. That right there, just that alone, that with the black theological tradition showing me the theme of liberation from Exodus through the prophets, through Jesus into revelation and that straight line through that's for me, they gave me, they, they, they filled in the painting, you know, for me, they gave me depth and breadth and dimensions that I weren't there. But like, I, when I just fell in love with all of them as writers, but I'm like, no, this is when I lead imagine in this neighborhood. And one of my first questions is what does it look like to be present with the marginalized? It's because Kelly Brown Douglas is speaking through me. You know, it's because the when I when I say certain things I say about justice, it's because James Cone and Katie Cannon and Renita mm. Weems and whoever is speaking through me, right? And and Ralph as my Dr. Watkins as my professor, he's speaking through me. So even if I'm not naming them explicitly, their work is flowing through me pastorally and practically. So I think when it comes to the hermeneutics and how I read the Bible, it's like one, I'm looking for the liberating, present, compassionate status quo challenging Jesus. That's mm -hmm. what I care about. And also with my own experience in the life of the mystics and the perennial tradition of the mystics, I'm reading the scriptures for wisdom and transformation. You know, I'm not the type who sees doctrine when I read it. Those, we can have those conversations. I honestly just like, you don't think Paul wrote Ephesians. Okay. You know, you want to talk about atonement <laughs> theories and the roles they play fine. You know, like, the flood, Jonah, Genesis, okay, that's all great, but how is this beautiful, explosive, and powerful sacred text disassembling you and putting you back together as a person who's fighting for the freedom of others while remaining free yourself? The like the, I don't want to give people a glimpse because I don't want Jared to steal it, you know. But I, I do have a third <laughs> book because I, I do have a third book that I'm that I'm doing almost done with the background part to start writing and it's about the cosmic Christ and the concrete Jesus. Mm. It's about how the mystics gave me the cosmic Christ that holds all things together and black and womanist theologians and black voices gave me the concrete Jesus who keeps mm -hmm. calling us into the practical way of compassion and justice and liberation every day. So if you see any writing from Jerry in the next couple of years, we're recording this right now. You're going to know he got that from <laughs> But yeah, that's for me. my stuff I, I really, on my stuff on that is already out there, mate. Yeah, I was so say, like, oh man, so, I, so I, I actually I'm stealing from him. I'm already I'm stealing from him. Actually, it's a reoccurring <laughs> conversation because um, both of us, uh, while uh, seeing the importance of talking about the cosmic Christ, don't believe that we can disassociate and disentangle that from then the particularity of who Jesus mm, is that lives that you're talking about. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, something that's, that's good important to both of us. So never mind. Whatever I do is derivative of what Jared already did. So I have it reversed. Forgive me. <laughs> but Jared's not <laughs> going to write it down. So if you write it down first, <laughs> you get all the credit. <laughs> yeah. Kev, you know, what's really interesting is that um, actually the first ever inverse episode, um, uh, Richard Raw was our guest and um, 
my, my mate Dave, who's an incredible musician and um, uh, played keys on um, uh, the latest Gang of Youths album, he's actually producing it and he did this brilliant thing that I'm like really thankful for where he edited in, we have a upcoming conversation with Dr. Drew Hart on this particular point, because um, uh, with Richard, I, I was bringing up um, Jacqueline Gray's um, uh, The Black Woman's Jesus and The uh, White Woman's Christ. Christ. Mm. And um, th this kind of, some of the danger of, um, I think particularly for evangelicals of, um, dislocating a sense of um, uh, the messianic um, uh, promise being for all of reality um, from the Nazarene and the concrete mm. life. And it's it's kind of like a conversation which has actually cast a shadow over a lot of what um, Inverse has actually done. So it's it's fascinating you bring it up mm. and, mate, we're, mm. we're looking forward to it. Like, um, we we look forward to getting into what you're saying and your particular yeah. contribution to the conversation. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I want to, you know, one story when we talk about, you know, before we were talking about performative gestures without repentance and actual transformation of our lives, mm. et cetera. You know, for me, the voices of Black people as a whole and Black women as well, shaping me so profoundly and how they still speak through me and shape me today. At my fuller graduation, I think I told Drew, I think I told Drew this story. I believe I did on the podcast. But when I graduated Fuller, I put James Cone's book, Black Theology and Black Power, under my robe and tucked it in my waistband. Yeah. And so when they called my name across the stage in our robes, I took it out and held it up and walked across the stage with it. You know, as a sort of this prophetic enactment, this sort of, you know, performance art of, hey these voices that you may ask us to read as one optional book for a systematic theology class or something, <laughs> these voices that you have marginalized historically and still do. I mean, I haven't been at Fuller in a long time and I love the people there, but I'm like just institutions and that institution and many others. I'm like the voices you've marginalized and set as optional for me, they were centered and actually essential. And I think that needs to become more and more of a reality for people. So that was like my moment. And what's funny was when I did that, you know, I go over, and I put it in my arm and I shake Richard Mao's hand when he was still there. I'm like, cool dude. And like I go off stage. And when I texted Watkins and I texted my friend Bryson, who's at Chicago theological seminary, who actually just got a job at Santa Clara university, like, I texted them and told them what I did and they weren't, their response wasn't, yeah, like, you know, F Fuller, homie. Like, and it wasn't like, it was, I remember Doc Watkins said, praise God, because for him and for mm. us, it was gospel issues. It was Jesus, you know, it wasn't any oppositional thing. It was like, we're rounding out the fullness of our image of Christ. And these are the voices that are doing that for us, you know? Mm. So that was that was my when I was ending I was like all right I gotta do this I know like they told us not to have anything and flash it but sorry bad pastor bad student at that moment but I'm doing it so yeah 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 good times so Kevin um I would love to have you lead us into this text I mean I would love to see how a mystic that is you know uh seeking wisdom and transformation that is taking seriously the liberating life of Jesus Christ, uh, how how someone like that reads Hebrews 11. So you want to help 
walk us through and have a conversation around that text together. Yeah, I just got a, I got a little something for this. And, you know, my disclaimer is I really believe in preaching about working really hard and embracing the artist's simplicity. You know, I think people look back and say, I wish I would have been more simple and I wish I would have been more repetitive because people don't always, you know, we don't learn off of one thing. So yeah. I always feel like there's something simple and real to call us into. And I will share this deep suspicion I've had for a long time before I read the text about many people's path with God. And here, here's my sort of, you know, hot take for the day, or maybe it's not. But I think much of what is communicated as religious obedience or spiritual piety is actually just passivity and disempowerment. Hmm. God has created us for creativity, and too often we prefer conformity. God has created us for innovation, and too often we prefer to settle for more information. And God has created us for actual spiritual experience, and we prefer so often to live up to other people's expectations. That's why I'm sometimes probably more uncomfortable with people using the language of obedience to God than others, because for me, it still feels at times like a child begrudgingly doing something they don't fully believe and don't fully want to do as we get older. And, you know, much of the language and culture of obedience that I see in the church to me feels like a childish, immature and passive way of seeing ourselves and of seeing our relationship with God, you know, it's like, yeah, that's profound. We long for this freedom to do what we want, but when those defining times come and we look ahead to the unknown, we still want someone to tell us what to do. Right? We keep justifying where we are by telling ourselves that God has us exactly where He wants us, when the truth is that there were a thousand micro decisions we made along the way that steered us right into this very location. So sometimes for me, I look out and I think. We say we're waiting for God to speak while I believe God is waiting for us to choose. Hmm. So Moses, this great liberator in the biblical narrative, right? Challenging the Egyptian empire, speaking this bone chilling truth to Pharaoh and leading when you have the eyes to see it, this massive political and economic liberation of the Israelites. You know, he's the one responsible from my perspective for revealing to the world that God is always in solidarity with the oppressed, like we talked about, and that any form of liberation that does not take injustice into consideration is nothing and very self-serving, right? What happens when you have the cosmic Christ without the, co- the concrete Jesus? That's what happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just become indifferent. And he's also the one who revealed that God hears the cries of the oppressed, Um Moses is the singular figure in the social and sacred history of the planet. So when the writer of the book of Hebrews remembers Moses's greatness, here's what he says, and I'll remember it again. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, we can talk all about empire and liberation and divesting ourselves of power and what it means to subvert the very empire that has offered you everything and to be honest drew and jared will do a much better job of that for you than i ever would and i'm not even like and and they'll embody that in ways that are to me more committed than i will and i you have great people here right who are leading this so 
I want to say something different. I want to suspend that. We know that I'm with you on all that. I don't want people to think I'm not aware of that. But I do just want to say something simple about that passage. What that passage says that can be missed in the larger themes of empire and what it is and what it calls us into is that Moses chose. Mm. That's it. Mm. That's what made him great. A choice. Moses chose to be in solidarity with oppression instead of enjoying the endless pleasures at the table that was built on the backs of the oppressed. So this historical greatness of Moses is defined by this simple reality of choice, right? Moses is one of the most iconic, influential, and important figures in human history, a person who I've already said whose name is synonymous with liberation and who still, who's a person whose work still catalyzes work for justice and offers themes and motifs that shape us today. And the writer of Hebrews says he became that person because he chose to. Here's why I offer that to people. It wasn't magic. It was a choice. Yeah. It wasn't some uncontrollable fate. It was something he decided to do in the midst of the calling, in the midst of the vision. He still had to make that choice. It wasn't a fixed plan that he just happened to fall into. It was a decision he made with his real everyday life. And Moses reveals the simple but forgotten truth that we always have the power to choose. So many people that I've cared for, pastors who I see unconsciously can fall into such a, a, a life of disempowerment. And it feels like life is happening to us. When I believe, like Roar would say, we've been created to happen to life. And, you know, Drew has made... Like if somebody were to look at Drew and be like, oh man, this dude, you know, he wrote, he got these two books and he knows all these cool people like Jared, you know, he gets invited. He's in a hotel room in Indiana. He's living it up right now. And uh, he's a professor and he, I want all those things. Like, why does God give him that? I'm like, that's not how that works. You know, I think, you know, God has called him and the spirit calls all of us and invited him. But Drew, wrote that book. He studied for all those hours. He made those choices. He chose to commit when you're exhausted at nighttime, right? And to me, it is not negating the power of God, but it is, I think, receiving the power from God that God is constantly placing back on us in order to embrace our sacred responsibility to co-create the future with God. And Mm. You know, that's something I want to offer people so often when people feel stuck, they're not stuck. They just have a really hard choice to make. And there's probably consequences they're not ready to accept if they make that choice. So now life's happening to me, but really, we just are not allowing ourselves to see the reality that one, we've made choices. And again, this doesn't negate the trauma we've experienced. It doesn't negate the family systems we grew up in. It doesn't negate that we haven't chosen the foundation we've been built on. But what it does is it offers us that dynamic and sacred power of simply making choices. And for disclosure, and I'll I'll end with this little story about myself right now for people before we talk a bit. I just want to tell people, you know, this is the first book that I've written. And it means a lot to me because it's my first. And 
coming on podcasts right now and doing these interviews means something to me. Of course, there's a novelty to it, but also it's, I'm so grateful for people like Drew, who I, I mean, we know each other, we don't know each other well. And Jared, who I've never met in person. It's like, you haven't seen me on other podcasts. You haven't been like, oh, he killed it on that. It's like, no, you're doing this, even though you haven't seen me. I don't, I don't take those kinds of opportunities for granted. And all these other podcasters who are doing that, and I'm excited about where I'm at and I'm entering into a new chapter and there's cool things ahead. But I would tell you this, go, leading up to May 31st, I'll probably be on say like 20 to 30 podcasts, right? Well, because this is my first book, these podcasts aren't reaching out to me. I'm reaching out to them. I'm writing my own press release. Like I have a, I have a publishing agency, but it's a boutique one. So I do a lot of, you know, it's a, it's more of a partnership when it comes to that. So I'm making, I reached out to two to 300 podcasts and I'll probably end up on 20 to 30. I'm DMing them and I'm emailing them and I'm following up and I'm getting no response and I'm writing my own press release and I'm creating my own media kit and I'm sending them everything and I'm creating my own promo version of the book, you know, and I'm doing a lot of my own hustle. The reason why I say all that is me ending up here. It's not magic. It's not God likes me more than anybody else. It's not God chose me to be here. And some people just don't get to write a book. No, the people who get to do the things we really want to do are the people who do the things we really want to do. Moses chose. And I believe if he's a real person, he could have chose not to. That defining, you know, truly life altering on many levels like outcome of his decision came from that reality of choice. And what often feels like magic is actually just a tenacity and a commitment and a recognition that the spirit is inviting us forward and not waiting for not, we're not waiting for God to tell us the one thing to do. God's inviting us into a horizon with a thousand things to do that are all good that we can choose because we have the freedom to. So like, that is something I push back on people is, Hey, when things are difficult though, like you can choose, Oh, but this is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be tough, but that's the choice. That's the choice to be real. That's what authenticity looks like. That's what it'll cost you to be authentic right now and to trust alignment. But that alignment with the spirit is what's going to make you be free in 10 years. Let's make that choice right now. So I'm Mm. always pushing that back on people. Mm. So I will end it there. Thanks Kevin. And so I've, Two thoughts um, that are immediately, one is I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, I mean, just thinking about the significance of choice and um, how important that is, just in terms of like everybody. I mean, people are making choices every day. We're making ordinary choices that add up. And, mm-hmm. you know, I often say, even to my student, you know, like we make choices about what spaces we will be in, whose bodies we will be beside, right? Mm. What we show up for and what we don't show up for. Um, And for, you know, parents, we make choices about, you know, what neighborhood we're going to move into, where we're going to send our kids to what schools and all these Mm. choices, right? Um, And they can be choices that are um, seeking our own comfort or they can be choices that are uh, intentionally, um, liberative, right, for others. I um, mean, so yeah, there's choices that we have. And so I think that it's really um, significant to demystify 
on one hand, right? The the mm. power of choice. Um, though I do have a question, I guess, or maybe it's not <laughs> a question, but a, a thought um, that I'd maybe I'd be curious. Uh, and I think you would agree with this, um, but I think like it, it's helpful to say that obviously some people's choices are under constraints, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so to say mm -hmm. not all of us have the same level of choices, the amount of choices I have are much, I have a much grander range of choices than uh, my parents and my grandparents mm -hmm. and my great grandparents and so forth. Um, and so the, the challenge of, um, and the only reason why, cause I, I know your hearts, I know you're not saying this, but I know like, you know, like folks will use choice and personal responsibility as a way of beating down as though everyone has the mm -hmm. same choices, mm -hmm. right? Sure. Um, and I just don't want people to hear that. No, of I course that not. That's not your heart. But um, mm -hmm. but anyway, so that the choice under constraints, but even that person still has choices, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And they can decide um, um, choices and even within the restraints that they have. Um, the everyday ordinary choices that are going to uh, lead up to something else. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, that's such an important, you know, that's where the reality of, you know, you can't say everything at once, but I appreciate mm -hmm. that because, because being on this podcast with a limited time frame, I do appreciate that because embracing the reality of agency does not mean everybody has the same amount of, or the same kinds of choices given our social locations, right? Mm -hmm. I already acknowledged the privileged place I come from. My choices are very different from people I've grown up with, you know, or people I know, you know, to be a woman in the United States of America, your choices, you still have agency, but you have a different, you have different choices in front of you because the system is working for you or working against you in different mm -hmm. ways, right? Being a black man in the United States of America, being a black woman, being somebody who's able-bodied, being somebody who's LGBTQ, it's all agency. It's, it's relative agency. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We all have agency, yeah. but the choices in the, that flow out of this unique context of our life are not the same because some people have a lot more in the way on their path towards wholeness than other people do. There mm. are things in, in, in the path for you, Drew, to move towards wholeness, you know, move towards the flourishing that you desire that I didn't experience, would never have to think about, would never have to worry about on a psychic level, would never have to face on a social level because of the color of my skin, et cetera. So yes, that's an important thing is the agency is the recognition of the power to choose, but it's also taking into consideration the relative nature of our choices and how our agency works out in the context because of all of these power dynamics mm -hmm. that are at work all of the time. So absolutely. And, and that's why I appreciate um, the, the context of where we are in the book of Hebrews as well. Like the, the author of Hebrews, um, she's having a preach right now. Like this is mm. the, the by faith section mm. and um, it, it's about to be followed up by um, uh, they pass through the Red Sea and um, uh, somebody in this, let's use the language that um, Vincent Harding wasn't keen on, but most of the public use all the time as a shorthand, but um, you have this person in a position of power and mm. the same way that people are about to move through 
like the Red Sea and it be parted and that's miraculous. We're going to have somebody from a position of power actually move um, into solidarity with suffering people, God's people, mm. and it's named mm. as such, instead of, and this is quite explicit, the short-term sin um, that they would have enjoyed in that position. Mm. What I love about this text is that this is about the agency um, and the miracle of those people who are in positions of power, realizing they've got agency to come and be amongst and be found with God's people who are the people who are suffering and not just mm. merely benefit um, from the short-term pleasure of sin that causes their suffering. And so that that that's kind of like a, a parameter for the kind of agency that's being talked about here. This isn't an agency for everybody, but those um, uh, somebodies who do have that agency to come and be found with everybody who doesn't. And that's a particular choice, which I really appreciate you highly highlighting that, Kevin. That's, mm. that's um, it's, I think it's really helpful. Yeah. Cause I mean, the realities of day to day is man, there's, there's family stuff going on. And that's, that's my pastoral heart, you know, like pastoring concretely saved me from idealism. Mm, mm -hmm. Cause when I was in grad school, it's like all head, it's all head knowledge. It's all this, you know, is not at all the same kind of embodiment of starting a church and leading and dealing with it. It's, it's, you know, it's a totally different embodied journey. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, being able to come in and, and make those choices and, and recognizing that like, the day-to-day, -day, my pastoral heart is not always like, well, back in the day, it's like, well, just take down the multinational corpse. You're like, it's not that simple, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just full yeah. the, the music industry, you know, like in that song where I'm critical of the corporate nature of the music industry, it's like, well, it's like, well, shoot. I mean, what do you expect this kid to not sign the crappy deal? Who's ever signed for a hundred thousand dollar bonus on the spot, you know, mm. like, now I'm like, you know, a lot of people's day-to-days and most people's is like, you know, the, when we talk about choice and agency, it's, are you going to implement that boundary with your mom or dad who's just crossing it and being toxic? That's a choice, you know, or you have a, there's a weirdness in a friendship or a relationship. It can just fizzle, but, or you can make a choice and have a hard conversation. That's a choice. Well, Kevin, um, Mate, uh, you, you're always welcome in this space. I, I've really enjoyed this. Um, we'd love to go to a bit of Q&A with those who have shown up live. Um, so for the official recorded bit of the podcast, we, we might wrap here. Those who are wanting to um, follow along your journey, find your book, um, how do people find you? My own podcast is called The Church Needs Therapy. You can find it anywhere podcasts are for the most part. My book is not up for pre-order yet, but the book will be The Making of a Mystic. comes out May 31st. And the best way to stay in touch for those who have it is to find me on Instagram. It's just at Kevin Sweeney one. And that will be me updating me, letting people know when the pre-order is available. So I think Instagram is where you see what's happening with my podcast. You see what's happening with my writing. So I think that's probably the best space to be able to do that. I'm not really on, I don't post on Facebook, but my Instagram is linked to it. So it just kind of ends up there mm -hmm. too. So yeah. Yeah. And again, man, I'm just grateful for both of you and for everybody who's listening in both present right now. And also you're listening from wherever you are. It's a, it's a gift for me to be here. And I'm really, really grateful for this to be invited into this space. Well, we're re really excited to, um, yeah, have you here. This has been a really good conversation and, uh, 
good to be in conversation with you. Uh, it's been been a while, but although I was rapping with you on the podcast, and folks will have to go uh, hop over to mm. your podcast and check that out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely check out um, this new book coming out. And uh, yeah, thanks for for yeah, the conversation man. together. Of course. Kev, would you feel comfortable um, praying for people who are listening uh, before we go to questions? Yes, let's do that. Thanks, mate. God, thank you for the miracle of life and existence itself. And would everything we do be placed in that larger envelope of the, the miraculous and the gift that this is in the beginning? And would your spirit invite us into these deeper contemplative spaces to be held together by the cosmic Christ who makes us feel safe in this world? And would we dare to open our minds, our hearts, and to activate our bodies to follow the concrete Jesus who invites us to be dangerous and loving in this world as well? In Jesus' name, amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down. Why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.